John Denver, what were you talking about? Yeah, Mountain Mama it evokes a lot of images to me, and none of them are particularly romantic. Welcome to this episode of Kick-Ass Queers. I'm Rachel Stewart. And I'm Larry Womack. And today we're going to try something a little bit different. This episode will, for the first time, not focus on the life story of a single kick-ass queer. Instead, today, we're going to present the case of Lawrence v. Texas, the Supreme Court decision that made it legal to have gay sex in all 50 states. This is such a big story, and there's so much ground to cover, and there was so much research to be done and players within it. So that's not to say that this isn't still about kick-ass queers, right? We've talked a lot in previous episodes about how the hard work of activism can get lost in these flashier narratives about inflection points and and big stand-up moments. This case is going to involve so many kick-ass queers, and we're going to talk to a couple of them. It will also involve a few who were absolutely not kick-ass. No, dead-ass. Suck-ass, whatever you want to call them. (laughs) There are a couple that do not kick-ass. No. In the first episode, that's the one you're listening to right now, we're going to talk about the atmosphere of pervasive homophobia in 90s America, as well as some specific events leading up to this case in the county in which it occurred. In the next episode, we'll be talking about the cast of characters involved in the arrest and its immediate aftermath. We'll be talking to Lane Lewis, the activist who first recognized the case's potential, advocated for Lambda Legal to take it on, and convinced the defendants to take it all the way to the Supreme Court, which I don't think was a small challenge. No, not at all. Hmm. In parts three and four, we'll be talking about the case itself as it made its way up to the highest court in the land. We'll also be talking to Paul Smith, the attorney who argued the case in front of the Supreme Court, and we're we're gonna have to ask him what it's like to look Antonin Scalia in the eyes. Jesus Christ! Is it like a de- was it like a being in the presence of a dementor? He probably lost a couple months of his life. Just <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, I I'm excited about this one. How about you? I am equally terrified and excited, and I feel that this is actually well. First of all, I think it's one of the most current stories we've told, especially in today's political climate. It's something that is is serious it's something that has a huge impact on the queer community yeah so that brings us to why this case is so important right because one it was not that long ago around 80 percent of americans were alive when this case was decided and listeners who were not alive at that time weren't that far from being born probably just a couple years yeah and if you're any younger than that you shouldn't be listening it's true (laughs) we We use some language on this podcast. (laughs) And two, this wasn't just about sex. This impacted every aspect of life for gay men in particular, lesbians as well, throughout the country. If your sexual relationships were illegal, your romantic relationships were illegal, your lives were illegal, your careers were endangered, even your freedom was endangered. So imagine without this decision... Could something like Obergefell that gave gays and lesbians the right to marry have happened? Not at all. No, it's a criminal act. Yeah, it wouldn't. There wouldn't even have been. There wouldn't even have been a platform for Obergefell versus Hodges to be argued, because 
as much as it was an, an anti-sodomy law, it was really, it was a law to make it very hard for gay people to exist. Right. And because of this ruling, should this ruling stand through the current court, which we'll talk about a bit, laws like this one that was just enacted by a small town in Tennessee that make it illegal to be gay in public will be shot down by the courts. Like there's, there's no way if that law is enforced. Like, yeah. I guess the question needs to be begged. What makes someone gay in public? And, and that's why I think Lawrence v. Texas, it really did let the facade slip down that it's not about trying to protect the children. It is, we don't want you to exist. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, that's, that's, we're going to talk about a lot in this episode. That's sort of always been the pretext. And Justice Scalia said some things during oral arguments that were, even for the time, very backward and disturbing. There are things that some people still say today, and certainly some people mm -hmm. still think today. Absolutely. That said, I think it's really difficult for younger people who weren't around and even kind of for people who were to remember just how different the American culture was when it came to homosexuality 25 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. It was nothing like what it is today. Well, and I think it's fascinating because you bring up this thing. It's um, geek time. Martin and Nakayama, who are intercultural communication people, they have this thing called the dialectical perspective. And one of the things it talks about is these dialectical tensions that are created within culture. And, and one of their tensions is static versus dynamic. And that culture feels static when we're in it. It feels like it's standing still almost. But when we actually look back, we can see how much it's changing. And it is really hard. I mean, I think it's even hard for us. I mean, hell, Larry, when, when you first met me, I was terrified about being outed because of just all of the perception of consequences there would be if people knew that I was I was a lesbian. And I mean, the irony is, is I think everybody knew I was a lesbian. I, I, <laughs> I certainly did. I'm going to be honest. No, I mean, you literally I mean, you literally introduced yourself here that way. You're like, hi, my name's Larry and you're gay and we're going to be friends. And I'm like, no, what? Ah. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you didn't you didn't deny it. You didn't deny it. But you. Well, and yeah. it was like, who told you? But I was terrified. Yeah. Right. And 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 so now it is. And part of it came with the very real possibility of there still being discrimination, because that was what, 2001. So this is right around the time that Lawrence v. Texas mm -hmm. is being argued. You know, right around the same time, this guy I know and I've, I've known him for like 20 years, but I only found out very recently that when his parents found out he was gay, his father gave him two hours to get out of the house. And he spent a, a good amount of time after that living in his car. And things like that do still happen today, but much more common at that time. Also at that time, states seemed to make laws that simultaneously saw homosexuality as just a behavior, which was often criminal, and as an identity, which then justified discrimination. So they would say, oh, we're just punishing this behavior. But also, if you were convicted of sodomy, for example, in Illinois, you could lose your right to vote. So it's your identity as well. And 
1970, this is going to blow your mind. A Connecticut man was refused a driver's license because he was, quote, an admitted homosexual and that his homosexuality makes him an improper person to hold a driver's license. And the ACLU took them to court and their argument was, okay, but if you had gay sex while you were driving, that could cause an accident. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, the ACLU's response, true, a fair point, right? Fair, but everybody can get roadhead. It's not just the gays. And that was the ACLU's <laughs> response. Was like, yeah, guess what? Oh, like <laughs> if straight people had sex while they were driving. And yeah. um I yeah. I don't know how the case was resolved, but I don't think the guy ever got his license. I could be wrong. If anyone out there knows better, please correct me. I'm happy to know. <laughs> Man had already walked on the moon at this point, right? Well, and I think, again, this is why it's so important to talk about it. And obviously, Larry and I have a lot of fun and we, you know, can make light of a lot of it. But, you know, one of the common threads to talk about as well, though, is this one. This wasn't that long ago. Hmm. And two, it it still has consequences today. And, and we see the ramifications of it today. It's not it's not fear mongering, but it is to remind people. And just because it's no longer illegal to hunt us doesn't mean that things are OK. You know, it's Um, just because we got gay marriage doesn't mean that that gays are like good to go. And we are going to be talking about that a lot. So the Supreme Court heard a challenge to these anti-sodomy laws in 1986 in a case called Bowers v. Hardwick. And in a 5-4 ruling, they voted to uphold them. Justices Byron White, Warren Berger, William Rehnquist, which boo, anytime you hear his name, just go boo, fuck that guy. (laughs) Sandra Day O'Connor and Lewis F. Powell all voted to uphold those laws. Sandra. Oh, Sandy. She's going to be real interesting as this case goes on, by the way. Spoiler alert. Right. Spoilers. Um, (laughs) Powell was very torn on the issue. He went back and forth on how he was going to vote. So keep in mind that these were, even though this was during our lifetimes, very different times. Right. And Powell seemed to think the laws were silly. But he also seemed genuinely curious about why it even mattered. And he said to some people, I don't even know any homosexuals, which it's going to come up how many homosexuals he actually knew, but didn't know he knew. <laughs> because know, he knew like a lot of literally, them. That, that's to me, though, that's like the theme of America right there. Mm-hmm. Like, I just, well, I just don't know any. Yes, you do. You're just not yeah, safe that, enough I mean, to, for them to know that, you know. In a way, I think that's a good part of how we were able to make such progress in the last 20 years, because suddenly everyone knows someone, whereas other groups who might be discriminated against tend to be born into families of the same types of people. Gays, lesbians, transgender people can pop up in any family, and they do. So Powell later expressed regret at his vote, as did O'Connor, as you know we said we'll discuss, And it's usually rated as among the worst Supreme Court decisions of all time. And that's saying. (laughs) When you think about some of the stuff. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like, these were people who ruled that slavery was okay, that Jim Crow laws were okay. That was Jim Crow. Yeah. Like, (laughs) yeah. And this often will make like the top 10 of their worst decisions ever. Okay. Now, the city of Houston, which is. Roughly where our story is set, it's set in a very nearby suburb, is in Harris County, Texas. 
and Houston City Council. Remember, you know, we think of Texas, but this is a city with a diverse population at a time when it was still a fairly purple state overall passed two ordinances in 1984 that prohibited discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And uh, people didn't care much for that. In order to hold a referendum to overturn these two city council ordinances, they needed 28,000 signatures on a petition. They got 63,800 before they stopped gathering. So, you know, it's it's so it's so fascinating I understand that this was almost 40 years ago, but, you know, when people want to bring up sort of like, well, what's your problem? Like, you know, you, you've got, you know, like, oh, this is safe. And you're like, it's safe until you realize that most of your neighbors are really not comfortable with you existing. Mm. Or at least being protected by law. It's almost this weird thing of like, we're fine if you want to be gay, but... You know, if if you get bashed or you get discriminated against, that's on you because you've chosen to be gay. And keep in mind, people who signed these petitions were probably very aware, because it was in all of the news coverage, that uh, the KKK was one of the primary signature gatherers. Jesus. So they're they're walking up to Klansmen being like, yeah, you've got got a good idea here. So Harris County is, is voting on a referendum basically to stop guaranteeing equal employment and opportunity to all citizens, quote, without regard to race, color, religion, age, disability, sex, national origin, or sexual orientation. And it was 100% about those last two words. People didn't care about the other things. According to the LA Times at the time, opponents of the measure feared that this would make Houston, and you're going to love this quote, Rachel. Okay. Can't wait. Awash in a sea of immorality and perversion, reeling from an onslaught of homosexuals and sadomasochistic bars. Oh my God, why would they not pass that sooner? I know, that sounds kind of awesome. <laughs> like, my God, finally a reason to move to Houston. <laughs> oh. But in seriousness, like, come on, y'all. Like, seriously. So this fight was nasty, and it was extremely bruising. One city council member, Eleanor Tinsley, said, In all my years on the council, I have never seen such a sad and dangerous outpouring of hatred and venom. As the city council debated the original ordinances that this vote was to reconsider, the KKK stood outside the chamber chanting death to homosexuals. This is less than 40 years ago. Yep. Proponents of the referendum called in this lunatic Paul Cameron, who went on to some fame in the 90s because Rush Limbaugh and some other people who are now mostly in hell would cite his studies. And I hope you can hear the quotation marks I put around studies. Yeah, you could. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because what he did and what he still does is he does these meta study things where he looks at other people's studies and then totally misrepresents their findings to appear to justify anti-gay hatred. For example, he would look at a study of male victims of child sexual abuse and he would go, looks like most of the perpetrators were men and all the victims were boys. So all child Therefore, molesters... Therefore, it's homosexuality. Right. And also because he's excluded girls who are by right, far he only the most at... victims. 
right vic victimized um, exactly so he can say oh so all child molesters are gay and gay people are child molesters and in fact he's just not looking at the vast majority of abusers who identify as straight and had exclusively heterosexual relationships with adults and he's certainly ignoring the fact that girls are about six times as more likely to be sexually abused by them than boys or he would take a look at a study of domestic violence in same-sex relationships and then one about domestic violence and heterosexual relationships and kind of combine them and go oh my gosh my meta study finds that half of these perpetrators are gay <laughs> Gays are so violent. Oh my god! So he's he's choosing who gets included in his samples in a deeply dishonest way, and he's creating these narratives through either blatantly false misrepresentations or just a truly idiotic inability to comprehend what he is reading. Well, and you know, honestly, Larry, we're not too deep into this episode and i think that for this episode i might put up on our social media accounts a bingo card the logical fallacy bingo card mm. or you could do it as a drinking game that every time i will call out a logical fallacy you can take a shot but i i do warn you against alcohol poisoning because like that's i mean perfect hasty generalization so we've already had a slippery slope right that the complete disintegration of houston's gonna happen we've got a hasty generalization here of look i totally cherry-picked this data i found these two examples that support me and now i'm gonna oh and here's another one a misuse of numerical data where you're like, based upon these samples, 50% of them were homosexual. Well, yes, because when you only have this specific data, it's misrepresentation of the entire population. Yeah, and it's it's something people wanted to believe, so certain people would mm -hmm. eat that up. The authors of the original studies, not so fond of this. They would pop up and go like, wait, what? That's That's not what I found or how any of that works incidentally and um as early as 1983 he got kicked out of the apa for refusing to cooperate in an ethics investigation um <laughs> they're like you can't so even read our alive, journals anymore <laughs> so if he's still alive he's going to be trump's next surgeon general <laughs> he is now tracked by the southern poverty law center which as is a hate yep he's an anti-gay extremist yep. And this is the quality of person they're recruiting to their cause. And by the way, Cameron is currently making a minor comeback thanks to X. Hi, Elon. Fuck you. Um, uh... Basically, it, it, it kind of feels like maybe bad actors in foreign countries will regularly cite his work to incite anti-gay animus among low information groups. Mm -hmm. And at the time... A lot more Americans were low information about gays and lesbians because mm -hmm. that was the atmosphere in which they were living, right? Mm. Are we ready for some disheartening examples oh. or even more? Yeah, well, this is this is our this is that part of the episode where we're like, hey, it's not all fun. It's it's really not. Um, so, for example, a leader of the fight for employment protections was this activist named Ray Hill. And Ray Hill is really invaluable throughout all of this. He is cited in a lot of stories online and in newspapers about this case. He's certainly a big mm -hmm. part of Dale Carpenter's book. He was a friend of Lane Lewis, who we interviewed for this. Mm -hmm. And he'll play a key role in this case. But earlier, 
at the time of this referendum. He is obviously in favor of maintaining these protections for gays and lesbians. The leader of the opposition was a council member called John Goodner. Now, Goodner had previously sought out and actually won the endorsement of the local gay rights organization. But during this fight, Goodner told newspapers and at least one local television station that the only reason that Hill, the gay activist, had adopted his deceased sister's children... Oh, I can... uh, I can already see where this is going. ...was so that he could recruit them to the homosexual lifestyle. (laughs) I I mean... I, I don't even know what to say to that. Yeah, so Ray Hill actually confronted Goodner about this. And he was like, hey, you know, there might be another reason you would want to adopt your dead sister's kids. And Goodner replied that he couldn't think of another reason. And that that was, quote, because gay people resent not being able to bear their own children. They adopt other people's children to perpetuate their group. Okay. Oh, fucking Jesus. And then in a council hearing, he added, I will always enjoy and share the joy of being able to father children. Uh, You know, I just... uh... It's so crazy, right? This is one of the things that I tell my students about... One of the things when we look at the LGBTQAAP plus community is that we're considered a, a subgroup category, which means that we have all of the behaviors of a culture, but unlike culture, we can't perpetuate ourselves. And when my students are confused about that, I'm like, well, here's the thing. I have straight parents, you know, and... Most of my gay friends have straight parents, and I have a lot of gay friends now who have kids who show proclivities toward being straight. It's oftentimes almost like handedness in this way, right? Like, I'm the only left-handed person in my entire family, and I'm not going to adopt a child so that I can tie down their right hand and make them left-handed. Like, that's just insanity. It's the dumbest thing. It's one of the dumbest arguments And, you know, reporters challenged him on this, obviously, right? And Goodner's response was, I can't prove scientifically what it is I don't like about this gay issue, but I also can't prove scientifically why I don't like squash. Meanwhile, squash is totally legal. (laughs) I don't think he's trying to stop other people from eating squash. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a time where if you are playing our game, you can drink. That's called a false analogy. Hmm. Homosexuals and squash, not the same. Not the same. In less hilarious news, by a vote of 81 to 18 percent, Harris County voters said, fuck the gays, basically, repealed the city's anti-discrimination ordinance. They sided with the Klan by 63 points. And again, a reminder, Larry and I were both alive when this happened. And as much as we joke about being old, we're not we're not that old. And as you can imagine, this left Harris County, Texas, and particularly queer people there, deeply scarred and rightly afraid of public engagement for a very long time. Texas was one of 14 states that at the time still had laws on the books that banned gay sex. The country as a whole had started to move toward repealing their sodomy laws, But the country as a whole, I feel like listeners under about 40 or so just cannot process 
how virulently homophobic and generally fucking hateful this place was. When I was researching this, I I hit a few things that I kind of vaguely remembered, right? And then as we get a little later into history, things I absolutely remembered. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I vaguely remembered was that in 1991, Bill Clinton, while he was running for president, met with a group of LGBT advocates. Mm -hmm. And while this sounds like something that even a Republican candidate would probably do now, it was the first time in history a major presidential candidate openly even sought LGBT support. Yeah, and, huge. Yeah, this was this was a huge thing. I mean, remember people called him the first gay president? Literally, yeah. they called him the first gay president because he acknowledged that gay people exist and that we're a voting base. Literally. Right. And the platform that he ran on included allowing gays and lesbians to serve openly in the military which they could not do at the time. If you were found out to be gay or lesbian, you were kicked right out. Sometimes it was just a discharge, but usually it would be a dishonorable discharge. There's a great book out there for y'all who are looking for good to gay history. It's called Conduct Unbecoming by Randy Schultz, who did in the band played on. It goes through the entire history of homosexuality in the military. It's really, really fascinating because, you know, there's a lot of consequences that go with being dishonorably discharged and just so to have insane. to have a president be like hey you can serve in the military again we don't think that's necessarily a huge deal because that's something that that is allowed now the fact is he didn't get that to happen he did not because that was all well and good when he was running running for president pe- exactly. yeah people were like oh isn't this cool we have this young southern liberal that's kind of crazy and he's charming and all these things but then he actually became president and he appointed some openly gay people to his administration which was a first and he actually tried to let gays and lesbians into the military and um and what happened (laughs) don't ask don't tell right (laughs) It was. You would have thought the man advocated cannibalism. Honest, Congress. To God. <laughs> it was crazy. It's like Congress started drafting a federal law to bypass him. The assumption being they had a huge enough majority to override a veto. His approval rating plunged twenty-one points in sixty days, down to his all-time low of thirty-seven percent. Just to say that people that you've already been serving with. Yeah can just be like, oh yeah, hey, by the way, I, I'm into dudes. Mm-hmm. And at the end of this process, I, I, Al Gore sort of famously brokered a deal <laughs> or came up <laughs> with a concept, and, it, which was don't ask, don't tell, which was you can't serve openly in the military, but we're also not going to try to actively identify you to kick you out. Because they used to. Right. But if we find out, you're still kicked out. Sonorably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this was considered both a letdown and a victory. Yeah. Crazy. And now we say, like, don't ask, don't tell. Like, we talk about that like that was the policy that kept people out. But no, that was the incremental compromise. Yeah. (laughs) That that was the in-between. Absolutely. And uh, the midterm elections the following year were a bloodbath for Democrats. Republicans picked up 54 seats in the House Almost like they overturned Roe versus Wade here. Jesus. Right? Eight seats in the Senate and 10 governorships. This all helped lead to the Defense of Marriage Act passing by a vote of 
342 to 65 in the House. And in the Senate, by a vote of 85 to 14. That's a lot of liberals. Yeah. Again, this was not three. This was not 100 years ago. This was, I mean, we're up to 30 years ago. Yep. This is the 90s. And if you're up on your U.S. Constitution, that is a very veto-proof majority. Oh, God, yeah. So there was no real benefit to vetoing it except to make a political stand he has since said he regrets not having made, and he should have made. He basically signed it and told gay groups at the time, hey, um, if I don't, they're going to have constitutional amendments in all 50 states in two years, and that's going to be a lot more damaging long term, which probably true. Also still kind of cowardly. (laughs) Yeah. So if you wonder why Democrats like Obama seemed so slow to back marriage equality and other pro-LGBT action, just know that Bill Clinton, who left office with like 70% approval, barely survived saying, hey, uh, maybe we shouldn't fire and shame American soldiers for an inherent trait that doesn't harm anyone. But just just barely got through. Eked by. Yeah. The culture makes legislation possible, but legislation also informs attitudes. It's a back and forth. I agree. I absolutely agree with that. And I think this is where incrementalism comes in, right? Mm -hmm. Is that you can't have too massive of a change or else you wind up with a massive backlash. And the unfortunate reality is that we can only change oftentimes as fast as the slowest population allows it. You have something like Obergefell versus Hodges. It doesn't feel as monumental as it was, right? You're literally just saying, hey, yeah, you guys can go get married and you get the same rights and protections as any other married couple. And what have we seen in the last seven years, right? And there's lots of stuff to it. It's Trump and it's the Supreme Court and there's all sorts of stuff in eight years now since Obergefell versus Hodges was argued Look at all of the anti-LGBTQ legislation that has happened at state level. The systemic homophobia wasn't dealt with and isn't being Mm. actively dealt with. And something else to consider. Some of these laws that were struck down by this decision are actually still on the books. They just can't be enforced. (laughs) So if something happens to change this decision, as they just did, overturning Roe v. Wade, gay sex becomes illegal again in a lot of places. Bill Clinton served two terms. So this is we're talking about eight years of progress and setback. And again, obviously, incremental change is incremental change. And queer people have fought tooth and nail to get incremental change. One of the reasons why I think you see older generations of queer people sort of having this frustration like it hasn't always been this easy which i mean that's honestly the reason why we work for that change is so that it's easier for future generations in the like grand scheme of things the ink isn't even dry on a lot of these huge changes because you know i remember i remember don't ask don't tell i remember the defensive marriage act i remember these things and not as a child, like as a teenager. And, and at that time, I didn't know I was gay. But it also explains a lot of why when I did finally come out of the closet in my early 20s or realize I was gay, why I was terrified to come out of the closet. When you see something like 80% of 
a governmental body or 80% of a city be like, absolutely not. It is not okay for gay people to have rights. It doesn't feel safe. It just doesn't feel safe. Also, I, I get this real frustration with people who look back at these times at other LGBT activists and allies and say, what you did wasn't perfect. It had this horrible flaw. They hold contexts against people who are trying to change those contexts too often. And we see people like Barney Frank, especially, really thrown under the bus for that. And it's like, you know, maybe it's not his fault he lived in the 90s. Well, and that's that's actually one of the things that I have to... It's hard because there a, a lot of people, I feel, get canceled because they had sort of positions that today would be problematic Right. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I really try to do is to take where they were in context, context of not us now, but what was going on then. Especially when they're people who helped bring us to where we are now. Or the irony is people who did change the context, but had yeah. to work within the ba the bounds of what was going on at the time. That said, Bill Clinton has said that he should have vetoed the Defense of Marriage Act. But then that's also easy for him to say now, right? <laughs> when well, that's it, so you look at something like racism or homophobia, and you're like, you have to address the cultural aspect of it before you try to address the legislative aspect of it. And, and I said this when Obergefell versus Hodges passed. I was like, this is fantastic. Also... There's going to be a massive backlash mm -hmm. because we haven't dealt with the systemic homophobia within our country. And there are people who are willing to actually live a lower quality of life if they know for a fact that it is going to make sure that people like homosexuals are not going to have equal rights or protections. Anti-sodomy laws technically don't just affect homosexuals. Mm -hmm. Like those are things that can affect straight people giving blowjobs. Though an important distinction in this case will become later that this law specifically only applied to homosexual people. I, I don't know what the name of the law was, but the charge was homosexual acts. In many states, that was not the case. And that's going to be an important part of the ruling later. So by the time Bill Clinton leaves office, eight years later, we have Don't Ask, Don't Tell, the Defense of Marriage Act, so a baby step, a huge setback. And then he's able to get away with a few executive orders, one allowing gays to have security clearance for the first time since Eisenhower. Oh, uh, thank you. Right? We, and we just discussed that back in the Brian Stonehouse episode. Mm -hmm. And this is how backward we were just 25 years ago. Also to grant workplace protections to gay and lesbian federal employees. That That's mm -hmm. it. Um, these were big deals at the time. Looking back, pretty sad. Absolutely. 25 years. I have yeah. shoes that are older than that. Uh, I will say George W. Bush, when he came into office, he also had open, openly gay and lesbian people in post ambassadorship, stuff like that. So the culture is changing a little, but just that much. That, thankfully, is the end of our tour of the nightmare of homophobia that was 90s America. I don't know about you, Rachel, but it brought back some painful memories for me. Yeah, and I wasn't even out of the closet yet. Yeah, yeah. It's... 
it's not good. No. Um, however, in our next episode, we are going to be learning about some of the people who helped change that. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this, please remember to rate, review, and share with all of your friends. And if you're wondering which platform you can find us on, please check us out at kickassqueers.com. You can also find us on social media like Instagram and Facebook, not X, at kickassqueercast. Until next time, continue to take advantage of this ruling. A lot of people went to a lot of work to make it legal for you to have gay sex. And uh, keep kicking ass. What kind of gourd would you be, Rachel? (laughs) (laughs) I would be an acorn squash. Mm. It's dark and small, and people don't really know what to do with it, but when you crack it open and put some brown sugar on it, it's delicious. (laughs) I I, want to hit back at you for saying you are squash right after saying we weren't, but that was so good that I can't. I can't. Uh, I, I can't say anything.